0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, the very last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to read verse 11 through verse 20, the end of the chapter and the end of the book. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 20, please give your full attention. This is the very word of God. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went out into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do any of you remember Baghdad, Bob? This goes 20, back 20 years to the Iraqi war, the war in Iraq. Baghdad Bob was the uh, information minister, I think was his official title, something like that. He was the one who spoke for Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq, the oppressive dictator, the tyrant. He would send out Baghdad Bob, that was again just his nickname, I couldn't pronounce his real name, but that's the name he was given because of the way in which he would give reports every day of what was happening in Baghdad as the American troops were storming the city, taking over the streets, and totally defeating the Iraqi armies. I looked back and found some exact quotes from you, from Baghdad Bob, what he said to the media while this was happening in Baghdad. There are no American infidels in Baghdad, never. I triple guarantee you, there are no American soldiers in Baghdad. The infidels are committing suicide by the hundreds at the gates of Baghdad. Be assured, Baghdad is safe, protected. They are retreating on all fronts. Their military effort is a subject of laughter throughout the world. Now, Baghdad Bob was ridiculed around the world for saying audacious lies when the truth was obvious to anyone else. But that's not really surprising, is it? Especially that a tyrannical government would try to do that. But honestly, do you know of a government that's ever existed on this planet that didn't try to do the same thing to some degree or another? Every government that's ever existed has tried to get the people under their rule to believe their preferred narrative, which reflected their worldview, their political views, their ethics, whatever to get the people to believe their narrative, no matter whether it fit reality or not. That's just the way human societies and a fallen world work. In our country, that narrative changes about every four or eight years. I've called this sermon a tale of two tales. A tale of two tales, not a tale of two cities, but a tale of two tales, two stories. A tale is a story or a narrative that, according to the dictionary, relates the details of some real or imaginary event. Now we tend to associate the word tale with a fictional story, a tall tale or a fairy tale, but a tale can be about what really happened, a real historical event, or it can be about something that's made up. And that's why it's so important as we look at the end of Matthew's Gospel to decide whether this is a tale that is made up or it is a tale that reflects, that tells the actual history of what happened. It's essential. Every single living human being has to make a decision about this tale that comes at the end of Matthew's gospel as well as about his whole gospel. I've always enjoyed studying history and especially church history. But as I studied it in college and then more in-depth, in spec- especially church history and seminary, one thing I quickly realized is if you're gonna pick up a history book and begin to read it and try to find out what happened in the past, you better start by researching the background and beliefs and philosophy and political views of the guy who wrote the history book. Because he's going to put a slant on the events of history that reflect what he believes. And so, for instance, Of course, for me, Reformation history is one of my favorite parts of church history. But you're going to get a different slant on Reformation history if you pick up a book written by a Catholic scholar than you would if you picked up a book by a Baptist scholar. Or you get a slightly different slant even between a Baptist scholar and a Presbyterian scholar. Because they're going to focus on the things that uphold and confirm what they believe and downplay or even ignore things that don't fit with their view of reality as the old saying goes, history is written by the victors and that's certainly been true throughout history. How does this affect the Bible? Well, is it a tale in the sense that it's come together as imaginary uh, thought up, invented stories, like the Lord of the Rings books or something like that, or is this literal history that can be trusted? Your future destiny depends on your answer to that question. The tale of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has divided everyone ever since it happened. I want to take you back to the end of chapter 27 for just a moment. You'll see there, beginning in verse 62 at the end of chapter 27, this is what took place right after Jesus Christ died his, his horrific death on the cross. When he was taken down from the cross, laid in a new tomb nearby and a big stone was rolled in front of the entrance to that tomb. This is what happened according to Matthew next. It says there that the chief priests and the elders which made up the Sanhedrin they were most of the Sanhedrin which was the governing body of the Jewish people at that time they went to Pilate who was the Roman governor over that area and they asked Pilate to give them a uh, some number, we don't know how many, but a number of Roman soldiers, tough Roman soldiers, to be put under their authority that they could take to the tomb of Jesus and station them there, put the official seal of the Romans on the tomb and station those soldiers there to make sure they feared that the disciples of Jesus might come and try to steal his body so that they could, keep, they could make a mythological, in- inspiring figure out of this Jesus who had caused them so much trouble. Well, the whole Roman army, if every single next. According to Matthew, there was a great earthquake again. There was an earthquake when Jesus died and gave up his breath, his last breath. There was an earthquake on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And after the earthquake, there was a brilliant blinding light like lightning, it says, that came down from heaven in the form of an angel. This angel was dazzlingly bright. And the soldiers, it says, were struck with terror as the angel came down and he moved the stone away to show that the tomb was empty and then sat down on the stone. What the Bible tells us is that those soldiers were so terrified by what they saw that they passed out, basically. They became like dead men. They they passed out. When they came to, they ran to Jerusalem to tell the chief priests, the ones that they were to answer to, to tell them what had happened. And This is where the story gets really interesting. You want to ask the question, did the Jewish leaders believe what the soldiers told them? Did they believe that, that, well, they obviously all would have experienced the earthquake, but did they believe that an angel and the light had come down from heaven, that the stone had been rolled away and that the tomb was empty? Did they believe that? We don't know. All we know is that they didn't want to believe it, that's all we know. And because they didn't want to believe it, that's what takes place next, that's what determines what takes place next. The Sanhedrin, again, this ruling body over the Jews, they called together an emergency meeting. And the language here is the language of an official official meeting, so the, the, the action they take was the actual action of the Jewish leadership, of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They passed two motions. First of all, they passed a motion to pay the soldiers to tell a story that they concocted themselves. They told the soldiers, they said, we'll give you a good amount of money, a a significant sum of money, if you're willing to tell the story that the While you were sleeping, the disciples had come, rolled away the stone, stole the body, and gotten away with it. Secondly, they made another motion and passed another motion that if word got back to Pilate, which no doubt it would, that these Jewish leaders would intervene to make sure that the soldiers didn't have their heads cut off or whatever the punishment was for dereliction of duty and something like that. It's amazing how their biases and their presuppositions blinded them to the truth. You see, this is the path. This is what sin does when it takes hold in the heart of a sinner. When you allow sin to continue, it begins to entwine itself around your heart, and your heart gets harder and harder, and you commit things, and you do things, and you say things, that you can't believe that you've actually been brought to the point of saying and doing. You see, they, these Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus over and over and over again. They had somehow explained away all of his miracles as somehow being the work of the devil. They had tried to trick him into incriminating himself so they could accuse him of something before the Romans. They plotted against him. And then when he was brought before them on trial, they ruled against him. And then they handed him over to be murdered by the Romans. And now they're concocting a lie to cover up what happened at the tomb. You see, that's what happens at Sid, with Sid. It just got progressively more and more and more where they had so much more at stake and they had more to cover up and they could not allow themselves to believe that maybe they were wrong in the most profound way. Remember David. David simply was lusting after his neighbor's wife on the roof of his house, but that lust turned into adultery. That adultery turned into a baby, which turned into David having to hide what he'd done. So he plotted against his military commander And when that plot didn't work, he ended up plotting his murder, had him murdered, and he had that sin to cover up until Nathan came to uncover it. A tall tale. We talk about a tall tale. We think of something like Paul Bunyan and the babe, the blue ox, you know, we talk about a tall tale. We're talking about a story that has elements in it that are so obviously not real that you know, you know, that it's meant it's made up. I'm here to tell you the tall tale in this account is the one that was told by the Jewish leadership. There are elements in it that just cannot be believed. For instance, these disciples who at this time were cowering in fear. They had departed from Christ. They were cowering in fear, hiding from the Roman authorities. They did not even believe Jesus' promises about being raised from the dead when he told them We're to believe that these weak, insignificant, blue-collar men came up with a scheme that has transformed the world over the last 2,000 years. A scheme that involved stealing the body of their Lord. It's really hard to believe that all of these highly disciplined, tough Roman soldiers all fell asleep at the same time. That's really hard to believe when dereliction of duty could cost them their lives. It is really hard to believe that even if all of that had happened, the disciples of means these soldiers all fell asleep at the same time into such a sound sleep that these disciples were able to step over the soldiers, break the seal, the Roman seal on the tomb, move the huge heavy stone away from the entrance of the tomb, and then escape without being caught. One more thing, really hard to believe about their story. If the Roman soldiers were asleep, how do they know what happened while they were asleep? (laughs) It's a tall tale. It was a very tall tale, but they needed to believe it because of their worldview, because of their religious views, because of their ethics. They couldn't admit they were wrong. Why? Why was it so hard for them to admit that maybe they'd been wrong about Jesus all along? Well, Jesus had already told them to their face, very bluntly, that the issue was a spiritual issue. Because Jesus basically told them, you are spiritually dead, you cannot hear the truth, therefore you cannot believe the truth. That's what he's saying in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 42. Jesus said to the Jewish leadership, he says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see, they had bought into the dark narrative that the father of lies has caught up so many in our own world with. They could not believe because they were spiritually blind. They had spiritually dead hearts. They were spiritually deaf. Some of these Jewish leaders stood at the foot of Jesus' cross when he was dying at their hands. As he was dying, they stood at the foot of the cross and they taunted him by saying, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He didn't come down from the cross. He did a far greater miracle. He walked out of the tomb. He was dead and came alive again, and they still wouldn't believe. Reminds me of what the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man was told, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you're deaf to the word of God, if you're blind to the word of God, somebody coming back from the dead is not going to convince you, and this... Jewish chief priests, and the Pharisees proved what he said. You see, they had rejected the truth so long and so persistently that they could not believe it. It's kind of like that point, you've all experienced it. You get to that point if you're in an argument with your wife or your husband or maybe your children or a good friend, you get into this heated argument, and you're defending, you're right, and you're You're righteously indignant about how right you are, and you're you're arguing your whole case. But as the argument goes on, and you get more and more heated, there's a point where you you know that point you cross the line to now you don't really care what's true or right or wrong or what's true or false anymore. Now it's all about winning the argument, and you hear yourself actually saying things you know is wrong, but you have to say it in order to win the argument. You see, that's what happens. That's just a very tiny taste of what happens with sin in general is that you are so committed to your narrative that you're not going to give up the narrative even when you're proven wrong. And that's what's happened with the Jewish leadership. And honestly, it's what happens to people all around us every day. These Jewish leaders were in too deep to admit that maybe they were wrong about Jesus all along. They realized that to entertain the possibility that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man, who lived a righteous life among us, never sinned, died on the cross as the blood that needed to be shed for the covenant promises to be fulfilled, and to be raised from the dead to conquer death and to offer that life, resurrection life, to anyone who believes in them. For them to believe that, they would have to die to, their, to themselves. They would have to deny everything they've held on to and believed and taught and pushed upon other people so strongly. And so they bribe the soldiers and cover up the true report. And says in verse 15, this is a story that has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Matthew's probably writing this about 30 years later, and this still was the main narrative he's saying among the Jewish people. This is still the narrative of what this lie that was been told by the Jewish leadership. But let's talk for a minute about the true tale, because there are true tales. There are stories that actually reflect real history. Matthew doesn't end his story about the life of Christ with the ascension, interestingly. The other gospel writers do. But Matthew ends not with the ascension, where Christ, after having been raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven and, and, and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father. He doesn't end his story there. He actually ends it with a teaching session that Jesus had with his disciples just a few weeks earlier. The Ascension took place just outside of Jerusalem, but this this teaching session took place in Galilee. Jesus had instructed them to go there. And the purpose of this teaching session is to talk about what lies ahead for his disciples. He was going to take the throne. He had told them this, that he would leave them, but he would not leave them alone. He would send his spirit. And here's what their life would look like. Basically, their life, at that point, their lives would all be about going and telling the truth. Go. Go and tell the truth about what happened here. Go tell the truth about my miracles. Go tell the truth about what I taught. Go tell the truth about my death and what it means. And go tell the truth about my resurrection. And change the world. Three things that he tells them about the truth here that should encourage you this morning as people who I assume you're here because you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. Here's three things, about, three things that he tells us about this truth. First of all, we are telling the authorized truth. This is truth you can stake your life on. This is truth revealed from God. This is authoritative truth. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Because he is who he claimed to be, he is the son of God, he is the son of man, he is the redeemer, he is the risen one, he is now going to ascend to heaven to take his throne. And all authority has been given to him. It's the moment that Daniel was talking about hundreds of years earlier, when Daniel prophesied that there was going to come a day that after the Messiah came to his people, there was going to come a day where the Messiah would stand before God the Father in heaven. And he describes it. He says, One like a son of man came on the clouds of heaven. And that's how Jesus ascended to the Father. And as he came into the presence of the Ancient of Days, as he's called in Daniel 7, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1. We looked at this verse last week. It's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1 when he says of Christ that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but the one also in the one to come. In other words, the gospel is the truth. It is the authorized truth of the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because of that, the truth cannot be chained. It cannot be changed, and it certainly cannot be chained by any tyrant of any government, by any religious leader. Paul said, as he sat in a Roman prison, in chains. And what's interesting is that as God's people, as they go and tell the truth to the world as they suffer for telling that truth like Paul did and the other apostles did, as they suffer, as they're imprisoned, as they're even put to death as martyrs for the sake of the truth that they are telling, their suffering, their death, it actually confirms that what they say is true. Because that's the one other element of the Sanhedrin story that they told the soldiers to tell to the people. That's the other element that's not believable. Is that these disciples would go to their death for a lie. That they would allow themselves to be put to death for something that they had dreamed up by themselves that had no basis in reality. When we suffer, even when we die for what we say is true, we tell the world we're willing to stake our life on what we tell you. We live in a pluralistic society and there are many, many benefits to living in a pluralistic society. Many benefits that God's people, churches, and history have not experienced. We have freedom here like so few brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing now and certainly have experienced in history. It's a great blessing to live in a pluralistic society, but the downside is is we start to believe a lie. That their truth is just as valid as our truth. That those beliefs are just as meaningful and important as our beliefs. That what we say, you know, I think in our culture we just face this attitude of who gives you the right to tell me what is true? Who gives you the right to tell me what really happened at the tomb of Jesus Christ? Who gives you the right to tell me that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Who gives you the right to tell me that believing in Christ is the only way to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and to live eternally in in paradise. Who gives you the right to say that? And our answer is simply, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. He gives us the right. It's the authorized truth. The implication of that, then, is the second thing that Jesus emphasizes. This is a universal truth. In verse 19, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to all nations and tell the truth. When Jesus came the first time, he performed miracles, he cast out demons and he said that these were signs that he had come to bind the strong man. That's why he came the first time, to bind the strong man. And in Revelation 20, it tells us what that binding of the strong man was about. It says that, not not that Satan would be rendered inactive, because obviously he's been very active for 2,000 years. But the binding of the strong man, according to Revelation 20, is that he would no longer be able to deceive the nations. And that's why you have the book of Acts, which describes the gospel going from its Jewish nation out to all nations. Christ's death and resurrection he is now king of kings and lord of lords and this is a message that is go to every nation to every person it is not an American gospel it's not a South American gospel it's not an African gospel it is a gospel for any sinner in need of grace the gospel is not our story it's not our tradition it's not our religion it is the only way to the father There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I know that's not popular in this culture, but if you're going to tell the truth, you've got to be prepared to say that. Say it tactfully, say it gently, say it humbly, but say it. There's only one way to the Father. And if you're not in Christ, you're lost. And then finally, Jesus tells his disciples, not only is this the authorized truth of the King of Kings, not only is it a universal truth for every sinner, no matter where you may find them, it is the transforming truth. It is the truth that must change your life forever. He says the mission is to go baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. You can't say you believe what the, the hist- you can't say you believe the historical record of what happened at the tomb and then live your life the way you've always lived it. It's got to transform you. Telling the truth is not enough. We must train people in what it is to live by the truth. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll follow me as your Lord and Savior. The only resurrection, it's only the resurrection of Christ that can explain what happened in history. You know, Christianity is the only religion that is based on a historical event that has no merit whatsoever unless it accurately, perfectly relates what happened in history. But that's the only thing. The fact that it did happen is the only way you can explain the way that the church has spread the truth to the world and turned it upside down in the words of the book of Acts. If Jesus is alive, then the Bible is true. And the implications of that must transform your life. Must transform your life. If the Bible is true, it defines who God is. If the Bible is true, it explains how the world got here, let alone you and I got here. If the Bible is true, it shows us what the purpose of history is from beginning to end. If the Bible is true, then it accurately shows us what the future holds for us. And if the Bible is true, then it tells you this is the right way to live your life. This is the way. Back in 2020, so it's only two years ago, Lifeway, LifeWay Research uh, did a poll, a survey, of, of the American population. And after that survey, what they concluded was that two-thirds of American adults say that they believe the biblical accounts of the Luke and Mark relate about what happened at the tomb literally happened that he was physically raised from the dead. Two-thirds of Americans believe that. That's hard to believe. And one of the, one of the writers responded by saying, this exposes the danger of cultural Christianity the vague ascent to the Christian beliefs without any evidence of actual faith in Christ. They need to understand what difference it makes that Jesus rose from the dead. We need to show them that it makes all the difference in the world and that if Jesus is risen, he is also Lord. Like Paul said, as we read earlier, and Pastor Owen commented on it from 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins and without hope. And if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied because we are a people who have based our whole lives and our whole hope for the future on a fairy tale. Is the tale of Christ's bodily, physical resurrection A true tale or a tall tale? Every one of you must decide. Your life in this world depends upon it and certainly your future destiny totally depends upon it. G.B. Hardy once wrote that there are only two questions that we need to ask about our future. First of all, has anyone ever defeated death? Has anyone ever defeated death? Second question, if so, did that person make a way for us to defeat death also? Those are the two questions you need to answer about your future. You don't have to worry about anything else. Greg Gilbert said, Christians aren't making a religious claim when they say Jesus rose from the grave. They're making an historical one. They're saying that this thing happened just as surely and really as it happened that Julius Caesar became emperor of Rome. It's the kind of claim that can be thought about and investigated. It can be judged and you can come to a conclusion about it. And I would add to that, you must come to a conclusion about it. You don't have a choice. We live in a world full of lies and liars. And the reason the Lord left us here, the reason he didn't immediately after his resurrection institute the, the fullness of the kingdom of God, take away sin and death and suffering and brokenness and establish the new heavens and the new earth, the reason that we're here today is because we are sent here to be truth tellers, to tell the world this truth. Jesus is raised from the dead and all the implications that go along with that. This is an authoritative truth, it's a universal truth, and it is a truth that is transformative. Last week we saw, looking at Zechariah's prophecy related to Jesus entering Jerusalem the last week of his life, we saw that Zechariah promised that when the king came, this messianic king, that he would extend his reign to the ends of the earth and he would do it by speaking with armies, but by speaking peace, and this is the peace that he speaks The gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings the impact of his kingdom to every corner of the earth. And we are privileged to be a part of that great effort. We need to repent of our efforts to be respectable in our pluralistic culture. We need to repent of being ashamed of the truth that has changed our lives. Jesus said in Mark 8:38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You gotta decide, are you for him or are you against him? He didn't leave you any other options. Is his resurrection true, or is it a story made up by his followers? You need to decide. But I want to end with his promise. We say this all the time, but don't ever take it lightly. He says at the end of verse 20, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with his people. He's with his church. We are not alone in this. We don't have to defend this. We just need to tell the truth. Because not only has he sent his Holy Spirit to be his presence with us as we suffer, as we preach, as we are persecuted, but he has also sent his Spirit before us to change hearts, to open spiritual eyes, to open spiritual ears, to take away hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, so that when we tell the truth, some of the people, not all of them, many won't, most won't, but some of them are going to meet their risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the message that you share with them. There's no greater privilege in the world than bringing the word of life to a desperate sinner who needs to hear it. Let's pray. Father, Father, It is so good to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, to be in a place where almost everybody, if not everybody, believes that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And Father, we do want to begin by confessing that our lives don't always reflect what we believe. Too often we are like those people who say they believe, but it doesn't make any impact in the way they talk, the way they think, the way they interact with others and certainly not in terms of where they place their hope and find their greatest treasure. Father, I pray that this Easter would be a time for us to renew our commitment to the truth, and in a deeper sense, to renew our commitment to Jesus Christ, the risen one, who is our life, who is our hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.